I'd like you to imagine a scenario with me. Let's assume that a foreign power invades Oregon. And they come here to our community, to Eugene Springfield, and they attack us. They overwhelm whatever defenses that we're able to put together, and they ransack our community. After their victory, they take us captive. They take us back to their country, and they conscript us into serving their nation. And there we are stuck for the rest of our lives. We live as exiles in a place with a different language, a different culture, and different belief systems. We have to adapt to a completely new way of life. It's almost unimaginable. And then in the midst of this unfamiliar environment, we have to figure out how to maintain our faith. We have to figure out how to remain true to God while avoiding trouble with our new masters. It would be horrible, horrible to have our lives turned upside down in such a way. And yet, far too often, situations like this have happened to innocent people over the centuries. And it happened to a man named Daniel who lived some 600 years before Jesus was born. Daniel was a faithful Jew and his life was turned upside down when the city of Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonian Empire. And he was captured and he was hauled back to Babylon as an exile. And he spent the rest of his life in this foreign land serving foreign kings. If you're a person of faith, how do you respond to that? What is it that Daniel should do? Should he refuse to submit? Should he defy the authorities and risk his life? Or should he just go along to get along? There are no easy answers for Daniel. Over the next few weeks, we're going to watch as he learns to navigate his new life. We'll see him learn how to live by faith as an exile among people who do not share his values. And here's what's critical. He will live as a man of faith without isolating himself from the Babylonian culture or without letting that culture overwhelm him or consume him. Now, we live in a very different world from Daniel's, yet his experience has much to teach us. Thankfully, we've not been hauled away to a foreign country, as I asked us to imagine. And yet, because we are men and women of faith, we do live as foreigners in this world. In a very real sense, every believer is living in exile until God's kingdom comes in its fullness. You and I live with the daily reality that our citizenship really is not here. Our citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. And yet God does not want us to withdraw from our culture. He wants us to engage our culture 
He wants us to be, as we heard Jesus recently say to us through the Sermon on the Mount, He wants us to be salt and light. And this means we are here to preserve God's goodness in this world, and we are here to reveal God's truth to this world. And God wants us to do that, even while we live as exiles. Let's take a look and see how Daniel handles this challenge, starting in the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace." The book begins with a brief historical reference to let us know that we're not reading fiction. We are reading about real events involving real people that takes place at a particular point in time. And we know that in the year 605 BC, Jerusalem is conquered by the Babylonians. What's most important to note, however, is that this is not an accident. It's happened by God's design. As we learn from verse 2, the defeat of the Jews, God's own chosen people, has been caused by God himself. God has caused this because he sometimes uses ungodly people as instruments of his justice. And he doesn't do this lightly. And in this case, Jerusalem falls because the Jewish people have turned their backs on God by practicing idolatry. They've done this repeatedly, and repeatedly God has sent prophets to them to warn them again and again and again about the consequences of such spiritual adultery. And tragically, the Jewish people ignore the prophets, and they pay a huge price for their disobedience. Their temple is desecrated. They live under the rule of the brutal and evil King Nebuchadnezzar and many of their people are taken into exile in Babylon. This is painful judgment by God. Particularly because Nebuchadnezzar is such a brutal man, a man who wants to control everyone and everything. And because of his desire to accumulate power, he does not want merely to defeat his enemies. He wants to harness their spiritual and intellectual capital for his own use. And so he takes away some of the religious belongings of the temple. And he conscripts some of their best and brightest young men into his service. And getting these men involved for him is so important that he assigns his chief official, Ashpenaz, to prepare those men to serve him. 
And for a faithful Jew, this is humiliating. Serve King Nebuchadnezzar? As difficult as that would be, there actually is some strong incentive for a captive to go along with the plan. Instead of being killed or languishing in a dungeon or slaving away in hard labor, you're treated well and you become part of the king's entourage. In fact, you can become a person of influence. And at least at first, you're not asked to renounce your faith. There's a sense that you can navigate this and come through it okay and remain faithful to God. However, if you want to do that, you will have to steel yourself against all of the indoctrination that you will face. And that's what we see next as this story continues. He, that's Ashpenaz, was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So here we meet Daniel for the first time, along with three friends. And we get a glimpse of the different kinds of indoctrination they will have to endure. They're going to face issues involving their diet, their training, and even their names. And they will have to decide which battles to fight in order to uphold their faith. One of the first issues to arise is their names. Instead of Hebrew names that honor God, they're given Babylonian names that that honor pagan deities. If you're a faithful Jew, what do you do? Do you resist? Do you accept that? Well, names, names are important, but a name really doesn't define you. And these new names do not compel them to behave in any particular way. And yes, these new names may point to pagan deities, but it doesn't force these men to worship pagan deities. So they may not like their new names, but they accept them. You see, names are personal and cultural, but they're not spiritual. This is not the battle for these men to fight at this time. That's the first issue. The second issue is their training. They're they're enrolled in this three-year training program. And under the tutelage of Ashpenaz, they're going to be immersed in Babylonian philosophy and literature. And they're going to learn science and history, but they're also going to be exposed to magic and sorcery and paganism. Is this where they need to draw the line? Is this where they should take a stand? Not necessarily. 
You see, they're being exposed to Babylonian teaching, but they don't have to follow it. They don't have to embrace Babylonian beliefs. This is not the battle they choose to fight. They submit and they go along with the program. And by doing so, Daniel and his friends are demonstrating that they have incredible trust in God and they believe that they can hold on to their faith in the midst of this unbelieving Babylonian culture. Now what they are facing won't be easy. They will need to immerse themselves in the culture and ideology of Babylon while not becoming consumed by it. You know who does exactly that same thing? Missionaries. Missionaries live in a foreign culture. And they learn everything they can about that that foreign culture so that they can be faithful witnesses to that culture as they live in the midst of that culture. Now, Daniel and his friends are not in Babylon voluntarily, and they, they wouldn't describe themselves as missionaries, but in effect, that's what they are. This exile creates a unique opportunity for them to expose King Nebuchadnezzar and his court to the truth of God. And it's fair to wonder what kind of impact might these men have if they become counselors to the king while still holding firmly to their faith. Well, here's something interesting to consider. This group of men being trained to serve the king includes Jews and men from other captured nations and Babylonians. This group of men is called the Chaldeans, and they are considered the wisest of men. And the wise men that we know from the Christmas story, the wise men who visit Jesus, most likely were Chaldeans. And it's fascinating to think that those wise men may have come looking for Jesus because six centuries before his birth, Daniel was telling the Chaldeans about a Messiah who would come. When we live as faithful people, in the midst of an unbelieving world. We can imprint a legacy of faith that extends far beyond our own short lives. But if we want to do that, we have to decide which battles to fight and how to fight them. And so here we see Daniel striving to choose his battles wisely. He decides not to fight over his name. He decides not to fight over this training program. Instead, the thing he makes an issue about is his diet. It's what he eats. That's where he takes his stand. Let's see what happens. Verse 8. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So why does Daniel draw the line here? It's because in his case, what he eats and drinks is not simply a matter of health 
or taste or culture. It's not a matter of personal preference. It's a biblical and spiritual matter with significant consequences. Now, this is not a stand that you and I would have to take, but it's one he must take. Under the Jewish law, he is forbidden from eating certain foods. And if he simply goes along with the plan and says, yeah, I'll eat whatever is provided, at some point, he may find himself suddenly confronted with one or more forbidden items. And second, the meats and the wine he has served will have been offered to idols. And this is a pagan way of giving thanks. You take your meat, you take your wine, and you go through some religious ritual and you offer it to your idol. And then you eat it. And as a faithful Jew, Daniel does not want to be associated in any way with idol worship. Particularly since at this very time, God is punishing the Jews for engaging in idol worship. So Daniel makes up his mind. And he acts with resolution. This is not like the New Year's resolutions that you and I often make, which may last for an hour or a day or a week. This is the resolve of faith. And I believe that one of the reasons Daniel is able to act with such resolution and to follow through on his resolve is because he does not describe the act of eating this pagan food in a way that promotes rationalization. Rationalization so often is our downfall. And Daniel does not say, oh, it's just food. I've always had meat and wine with my meal. It's no big deal. Because of the way that this particular food and drink is handled, David believes it will defile him. And he says so. Now, defile is a strong word. But it's a necessary one. It's an accurate one. And using that strong, accurate, descriptive word helps him to see this issue in its proper light and to make the right decision. But think about all the times we use euphemisms that make it so easy for us to rationalize behavior that's harmful to our spiritual health. How might we behave differently? If instead of talking about telling fibs, we say, I told a lie. Euphemisms make it easier. How about if we speak about adultery and marital unfaithfulness instead of, oh, having an affair? If we speak about self-indulgence, And maybe even greed instead of consumerism. You see, describing things accurately can make us really uncomfortable. But it can help us see things as God sees them. And it can strengthen our willingness to act with resolve and to remain faithful in the midst of an unbelieving culture and not let the world around us consume us and suck us in. And that's what Daniel does. He does this to help steal himself because he knows this is an area where he simply cannot yield. He cannot give in. 
And yet, in order to accomplish his goal, he can't do it on his own. He needs some help. He has no way to get his own supply of food, and so he has to rely on the aid of the Babylonian officials. As we see here in in our passage, Daniel has earned the admiration and respect of Ashpenaz, the, the chief official in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Ashpenaz does not follow God, but he's willing to encourage these men. And yet, he's only willing to go so far. You see, because Daniel and his friends are going to be served the same food and drink as the king, they have the potential to eat tremendously well. If they change their diet and then physically lag behind the other trainees, Ashpenaz will be beheaded for disobeying the king's express orders. Out of fear for his life, he says, Daniel, I can't help. So, so what do you and I do when we face a setback? Do we give in and give up? Daniel doesn't. He continues to act with resolve and he pursues other options. Let's see what happens here in verse 11. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. Daniel simply approaches the next official in line and this time he makes the request differently. He proposes a switch in their diet for just 10 days. This will be long enough to determine if this inferior diet will take its toll, but not so long that that any negative results would become blatantly obvious. It's a shrewd way to get this official to take a calculated risk, and he agrees. So Daniel and his friends eat just plain vegetables, and drink just plain water rather than the rich food eaten by the rest of the men in training. This is a bold step because they're trusting God to make up any deficiencies that might occur in their health. And this is what it looks like to act with resolution. It means we choose to do what is right and we place all of our trust in God. And look what God does in response. Verse 15. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. God vindicates them. He vindicates their faith and he actually goes way beyond what they might naturally expect. Not only are they more physically fit than their peers, they are more mentally fit. And they're spiritually fit. Daniel is even given the supernatural ability to interpret dreams and visions. God vindicates them in a way which indicates that he has purpose in store for them. 
And such vindication only can strengthen their continued resolve to live by faith in this place of exile. Now, I need to make a little side note here. I've often heard this text used as a way to promote the benefits of the vegetarian lifestyle and to point out the follies of consuming alcohol. Now, we know that eating more vegetables and less meat is really good. We know that alcohol has bad effects on people, but that's not the point of the passage. The point is that Daniel and his friends ate what they believed to be an inferior diet. They took what they believed was a significant risk and they did so to honor God. But there's another point that we often miss because we live in an advanced industrialized society. Ancient cities did not have a reliable, safe, pure, clean water supply. And so drinking plain water could easily result in all kinds of intestinal ailments. People in those days preferred to drink fermented beverages because the fermenting process killed organisms and parasites and bacteria. So by drinking just water, Daniel and his friends were exposing themselves to a known health risk. And God kept them safe. And he kept them safe for three years. So God steps into this situation and he powerfully vindicates these men. What God does here is amazing. And yet we cannot universalize from their experience. Because God does not rescue everyone the way that he rescued Daniel and his friends. There are times when for reasons of his own choosing, God vindicates some people, not through their lives, but through their deaths. And therefore, we don't do what is right simply to preserve our lives. We don't do what's right to get some kind of earthly reward. We do what is right simply because it's right. And in this case, with these men, God vindicates their faith in a way that is visible to them. It's visible to the Babylonian officials watching over them. And it's even visible to the king himself. Look what happens when they finally meet the king. Verse 18. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter, not some, but every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. By verse 18, three years have passed. The men have completed their training. They have endured indoctrination into Babylonian thought and life and culture and they've held on to God. And they are presented to the king and he discovers that their knowledge and their wisdom and the advice they are able to give is vastly superior to any of his other counselors. 
God has equipped these men to earn King Nebuchadnezzar's respect so that they can live and serve in close proximity to him. And from this point forward, they will be in a position, a great position, to influence this earthly king to acknowledge the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the passage concludes with a peek into the future by giving us another historical reference. Daniel will stay there until the first year of King Cyrus, which means about almost another 70 years. It means that God is going to keep Daniel in this place of exile as a witness, and he's going to serve under three different kings, and his life will be an example of faith to those around him. And yet it's going to cost Daniel something. Because during all those years, he'll never be able to go home. He will live out his life among strangers in a strange place. And he will be a man of influence, and yet he will always have to tread carefully because at any point his faith could become an issue, and it will. We'll see that in the weeks ahead. His life will not be easy, but it will be a life that is fruitful and productive because his priority is and always will be to live by faith. Daniel will be a man of faith even though he lives in a place of exile. And so what can we learn from him? How can you and I live as people of faith here in our own place of exile? Well, we see that Daniel chooses his battles wisely and he resolves not to defile himself. The battles that we face will be very different from Daniel's. But there are all kinds of ways we can be defiled by our culture if we let our culture consume us. How could we be defiled? It might be the way that we express our sexuality. It might be the way that we spend our money or the way that we treat other people. It might be our unwillingness to forgive the people who have hurt us even though Jesus expressly asked us to do Just that. There are all kinds of ways we can be defiled in this culture. But if we choose not to let that happen, if we live with resolve, then we can be men and women of faith. And if we choose to live by faith and stay engaged with our culture as Daniel did, then we can be salt and light in this world. We can help people see the goodness of God. We can help the world around us understand the truth of God. We can be men and women of influence and draw people toward God if we choose to live by faith in this place of exile.